So we found out about 9 o'clock yesterday, 8.45 in our men's study, that Brian was sick and not going to be here. So Clint and I arm wrestled to see who was going to preach last minute. And he's stronger than he looks, so here I am. No, um, I'm kidding. Uh, we asked, when we asked Brian a couple months ago uh, to come and, and preach, we just gave him very general instructions. We said, man, any text, but we would love for you to open up God's word about mission. The mission of God and how God's people are to be equipped to take this message of the gospel to their communities around them. So I'm not preaching from number six today, obviously, Isaiah six instead, but I want to take up the same task of talking about the mission of God. And there's a lot of different ways you can talk about the mission of God. There's a lot of great mission sermons. And one is a very sort of practical sermon on here is, here's how to share the gospel. Here's how to live on mission in your community. Here's, uh, here's some great resources that you can use to become a better evangelist or, or missionary in your home or, or in your neighborhood or in your workplace. And those are absolutely wonderful sermons. In fact, we've written a class called How to Share the Gospel that covers a lot of those things. But we're not going to go that direction this morning. Because there, there's another way to talk about mission, and I, I think it's first and foremost, and at the core, it's the most important way to talk about the mission of God. And it's built on this simple principle. You and I naturally talk about what grips our hearts, don't we? We naturally share with other people what is valuable to us. So when we see a a great movie that we love, we tell our friends, you got to see this movie. Or when we eat a a delicious meal at a restaurant, we say, I want to bring you here next time. Or we hear this great band or piece of music, we say, you have to listen to this. And we don't really need a, a, a course or a set of steps on how to tell somebody about our favorite movie or our favorite dish or our favorite band. Why? Because it so grips our hearts, it's so valuable to us that we naturally want others to share in that experience. And the same is true as we consider the mission of God. And so, instead of starting with mission, we're going to end there and we're going to start with where Isaiah 6 starts, and that is worship, right? John Piper famously says, mission exists because worship doesn't. There are people in this world who do not know there is a God who loves them and who sent his son to die for them and they can be redeemed and experience eternal life and spend their lives in all of eternity exalting and delighting in the glory of God. There are people who don't know that. Therefore, missions exist so we can go tell others about it. So we need our hearts to be gripped for the glory of God. We we need our hearts to be stirred again to worship. You see, every single person is a worshiper, right? To worship simply means to ascribe supreme value to someone or something. So while not everybody is religious, not everyone would say, I'm a worshiper. There are certainly secular people, but every single person values someone or something above all else. Therefore, everyone is a worshiper. And what we want to see this morning as we come to Isaiah chapter 6 is that we exist to worship God and God is the one who makes us worshipers of him and then he sends us out to call others to worship him as well. 
That's what's happening in Isaiah 6. This chapter, this short chapter, 13 verses, shows us how a vision of who God is and what he has done makes a person into a worshiper of him. That's what God does with Isaiah. Then God reorients that that person's life, the, the purpose of their life, so that we live primarily concerned with the mission of God. That's what happens to Isaiah here. That's what I pray would happen to us, some of us for the first time, some of us for the 10,000th time, refreshed on so treasuring the glory of God and his grace in Christ that we are naturally compelled to tell others. And so as we walk through this passage, we're going to see four things. We're going to see three realities, three truths, and then one task. The first reality is this, the glory of God, verses 1 through 4. The second reality in verse 5 is the sinfulness of man. The third reality in verses 6 and 7 is the grace of Jesus. The glory of God, the sinfulness of man, the grace of Jesus, and then number four, the task at hand. Verses 8 through 13. God takes Isaiah and transforms him with those three truths and then sends him out on a task. And so it's always hard when you're parachuting into a, a, a book, especially a, a prophetic Old Testament book. We really don't have time to jump into a ton of context here. But if you look down at verse 1, notice that we get a little bit of background right off the bat in, chap, in chapter 6, verse 1. We're told that this happens in the year that King Uzziah died. That's the background for Isaiah. So we ask some questions here to help orient us with what's happening in Israel's history. Uzziah was for the most part, a good king. He was, if you've ever read uh, First and Second Kings and Chronicles, you know the refrain is wicked king, wicked king, wicked king. They did what was right in their own eyes. They didn't seek the Lord. But every once in a while, there is a good king who, who sought to obey God and did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And if you go back to Second Chronicles chapter 26, you'll read the story of Uzziah, who was, for the most part, till the very end of his life, He was a good king. He reigned for 52 years in Judah. Can you you imagine that? 52 years of a good, kindly king ruling over a nation. Unfortunately, at the end of his life, he became prideful. He entered into the temple and he sought to worship in a way that was contrary to what God had commanded. So God struck him with leprosy as judgment and he spent the rest of his life in isolation. It's a good reminder that even the best kings are sinners, right? But this was a king who was beloved by the people. Also, Isaiah, as a prophet, he's already been prophesying for, for five chapters as we come to this point, but he was the kind of prophet who wasn't, he wasn't like Amos, who was out in the field sort of picking figs, you know, a rural guy. He was actually a, a part of the king's court. So some commentators believe it's, it's certain that Isaiah knew Uzziah. Some even believe that he might have been a cousin of him, a close personal friend Related to this king. But here's the the idea that we get. That God's people and Isaiah are saddened by the loss of this good leader. And likely anxious about what's going to come next. 
That's how verse 1 begins. That's the the context here. And so what does Isaiah do? Where do we find him in verse 1? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So we know where Isaiah is. By himself, he's lost this king. The nation is anxious about uh, who's going to be the leader. And Isaiah goes to the temple to inquire of the Lord. The text doesn't tell us he's likely going to seek the will of God about the leadership of the nation. That's the background here for what's happening in this vision. And as he goes to the temple, heartbroken, likely anxious, the first reality he encounters is the glory of God. Verse 1 again, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, And the train of the robe, of his robe, filled the temple. Now, we can't see this on the screen because we use all capital letters. But if you're looking down at your Bible, you'll notice, look at verse 1. I saw the Lord in your English Bible, capital L, lowercase o-r-d. You see that? Now, look down at verse 3. We'll get there in a moment. But as the angels are declaring this about God, notice something different. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, all caps, L-O-R-D. You notice that? Just nod your heads if you're with me, if you have your Bibles. Okay, good. You say, why why is that there? Is that a typo? No, this is a way uh, for our English translations to distinguish two different names for God. The first, verse 1, I saw the Lord is Adonai. It means Lord, or it means boss, or we can say sovereign one. Down in verse 3 is the, the name of God that we would pronounce it Yahweh. Now, now think about that given the context. Isaiah and the people are concerned about losing this good king. They're wondering what's coming next. Isaiah goes to inquire of the Lord in the temple and he sees the sovereign one sitting on the throne in the temple. That's the vision. You hear the message for Isaiah here? It's as if God is saying, I know you've lost this beloved king, but just by way of reminder... I'm the one who sits on the throne. I'm the sovereign ruler of my people and all of the universe. You need not fear. I saw the sovereign one sitting upon the throne. God is the true king. And through this vision, this glorious vision, he's reminding Isaiah of this. Then it goes on, verse 2. tells us, above him stood the seraphim. Those are angels, right? Each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now, this is not like the touched by an angel angel. Do you notice that? That was a very old reference. Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? This is not the hallmark angel, you know, little naked baby with curly hairs just flying around playing a harp. You start to see why people are terrified when they encounter angels in the Bible, This is a creature, these are creatures with six wings, and notice what they're doing as they're flying. They are shielding their face, and they are shielding their feet as they fly around the throne of God and worship Him. Even these heavenly beings are created beings, and even they have to shield themselves from the the brightness of God's glory. This reminds me of a story in Exodus chapter 33 where Moses makes the, requ- the request, Lord, show me your glory. And you remember what God says? This is the Kevin Sanders version. 
He says, I can't show you my glory. If that happens, I'll melt your face off, right? Because sinful man cannot be in the presence of a holy and glorious God. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to carve out this cleft of the rock. I'm going to put you there. I'm going to pass by, and you can see the afterglow of my glory. But friends, even these angels created to be in the presence of God are shielding themselves from the brightness of God's glory. So this is the vision Isaiah sees. A throne, massive throne, train of his robe, kingly robe filling the temple, seraphim flying around, six-winged creatures, and they have a a message that they're declaring over and over again. Verse 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, to say that God is holy is to say that he is uniquely perfect. Holiness is the sum total of God's perfections. There is no one like him in his perfections. And that's the message that the angels are declaring. And notice that they repeat it. We might say, well, why would they repeat it? Is this a poem? Is this a song? Well, we're actually not told that the angels are singing this. They're just saying it. And there's nothing here to make us think that this is some sort of of poem. The, the reason there's repetition is, is simple. We, we use things like exclamation points, right, to emphasize things. Some of you overuse exclamation points, right? Everything is two or three exclamation points. Or some of you are emoji users. That's how you emphasize things, right? Well, I, this is needless to say, but there are no emojis in the Hebrew language, no exclamation points. So when something was emphasized, you would simply repeat it. R.C. Sproul, who has a wonderful book called The Holiness of God, puts it simply this way. It's as if these angels are saying, God is not just holy. He's not just holy, holy. He's holy, holy, holy. It's an emphasis on the unique perfections of who God is. And, by the way, the only characteristic of God that is repeated and emphasized this way in the Bible is his holiness. All other characteristics of God, his justice, his mercy, his love, his grace, all of it is under the banner of his holiness, the sum total of his unique perfections. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And they go on to say, now you might think the the angels would say the whole earth is full of his holiness, but that's not what they say, is it? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, That leads to a question. What's then the difference between the holiness of God and the glory of God? I think John Piper is very helpful here. He gives uh, two short explanations of this. He says God's holiness is his infinite worth. God's glory is the going public of his infinite worth. You see that? To use another illustration, think of the, the holiness of God as like a piece of music. You have a piece of music written on a page. Some of you might be skilled enough to to read that. But the glory of God is taking that piece of music and then amplifying it so everyone can hear it. That's why the angels say the whole earth is full of his glory. We read on. Verse 4. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Even inanimate objects 
in the temple are being moved by the holiness of God. Psalm 104, 32 says, Speaks of a God who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. Now notice nothing has been said about Isaiah yet. All we know is he is seeing this vision in the temple, this glorious vision of God. These angels worshiping God, declaring his holiness, declaring his glory. And it's so overwhelming that the foundations are shaking and the temple is filled with smoke. And here's the the question for us today. Is this the God we believe in? Do we believe that God is holy, holy, holy? That there is no one like him? That he is supremely glorious. That his presence shakes the very foundations of the earth. Or do we believe in a God of our own making? A God that exists to serve us. This vision of God's glory overwhelms Isaiah. And as we continue on. We see his response. So we see the first reality, the glory of God. And then as we read on in verse 5, we see the sinfulness of man. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, we may assume, if we didn't know verse 5, That Isaiah, the godly, righteous prophet, would see this glorious vision of God and just start breaking out in praise, right? Start singing all creatures of our God and King. Just overjoyed with worship of God. But that's not how he responds to a holy and glorious God. How does he respond? With sheer terror at the presence of God. You see that? Isaiah is terrified, and we know this because of his response. He uses some language that we're not familiar with, but he says, woe is me, I am lost. Or maybe your translation says, I am undone. What is he saying here? I'm finished, I'm ruined. Isaiah was a prophet, so he understood what it meant to pronounce woe. Prophets would do that all the time. As God would tell them to pronounce woe on this city or this people for rejecting him, Jesus does this, Matthew 11. As the cities reject him in his his ministry, he he pronounces woe upon them. And what does that simply mean? Woe, now by the way, it's W-O-E. Our woe is W-O-A-H, exclamation point. It's simply to pronounce judgment on something. Prophets would do this commonly as God directed, but this is the one place where we see a prophet not pronouncing woe or judgment on somebody else or another person, but pronouncing judgment on himself. He's saying, in the presence of God, I've realized his holiness and I've realized the depth of my sinfulness before a holy God, I deserve to die. That's the response to the holiness of God. Now, Isaiah was a a pretty righteous man as a prophet, right? And we don't know here for sure, but I can imagine if if I were Isaiah, there would be a a temptation as I'm prophesying against the, the wicked people of Judah. The temptation would be 
sort of look around and be like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pretty godly guy, right? I'm following God's word. This wicked nation, just read the first five chapters. This wicked nation has rejected him, but I'm, I haven't rejected him. But compared to God, he realizes he falls short. It'd be like me saying, There's, so I'm really good at baseball when I play with my six-year-old son. I mean, he can't hit a, a single pitch I throw, right? He can't catch a single, I, I hit homers all the time in the backyard. I'm pretty good at baseball. That seems kind of silly, doesn't it? Now, you put me on a field with somebody who actually knows what they're doing, it becomes apparent very quickly that I'm not very good at baseball, right? I think this is what is happening here with Isaiah. He is realizing, he's looking around him and he's seeing the wickedness of Judah, but when he stands in the presence of a holy God, he doesn't say, man, these people are are wicked sinners. He says, I'm a wicked sinner and woe is me, I deserve to die. See friends, we we can always look around and find someone that we think is worse than us. But when we view ourselves in light of the holiness of God, we will realize all of us sin and fall short of the glory of God. All of us deserve just judgment. All of us, in the light of God's holiness, our sin is revealed. And notice here for Isaiah, it's not just general sin. Do you see that? He doesn't just say, woe is me, I'm a sinner. He confesses a specific sin. I'm a man of unclean lips. And we don't, we don't know what he's referring to here, but it seems that he is confessing sin with his words. Unlike the seraphim, Isaiah realizes he's not honored God with his words. Not just him, but the whole nation. Friends, do you recognize your sinfulness before a holy God? If you think, I'm really not that bad of a person... Or if you find yourself saying, yeah, I know I'm a sinner, but you never actually are confessing true, specific, daily sins. Then you should begin prayerfully considering whether or not your eyes have actually seen the true king. Because that's what God does when we stand before his presence. He reveals our sin that we may confess it to him. Now, this is like the, the sort of brimstone message, right, that our, our culture doesn't like. Our world doesn't like. Our, our fleshy hearts don't like it. But friends, we have to understand the depth of our sin before we can see the greatness of God's grace. When I was a youth pastor, we'd have these small groups in homes. And on Sunday nights, we'd go to a host home. This was in, in, in uh, Atlanta. And uh, I'd, I'd go with the guys, and I'd have my leaders there. And before we'd do our small groups, there was a trampoline in the backyard. And um, looking back now, I'm glad all these, these guys signed waivers, because I'm pretty sure what I'm about to tell you is legally dangerous. But um, on the trampoline, there's this glorious thing called the double jump. Raise your hand if you hear that and you know what I'm talking about. Okay, good, right? So it's, it's, uh, it's science. I'm not a scientist, but, you know, a big guy like myself would stand on the edge, and a, a little middle schooler would jump. Right? And right before he comes down on a jump, I would put all of my heaviness into the trampoline and get it down as far as I can. And what would happen to little Billy? Right? Boom! He would just launch into the air. Right? 
That hap- that we would do that consistently every week till I launched one kid off. And I thought he broke his leg. He was fine. It's all right. He was one of the elder's kids. So we were done, okay? Right? But you see, the principle of that is simple. The lower you go, the higher you fly. Right? Friends, the same is, the same is true with our spiritual lives. The world would have us believe it's, we can't talk about sin. We can't talk about how sinful and messed up we are. We should certainly not talk about how we deserve God's judgment. That's going to damage our self-esteem. But what the scriptures say and what the gospels say is you must be honest about your brokenness and your sinfulness and the wrath that you deserve from God. Because when you go that low, you will realize the greatness of God's grace in saving you. You'll, you'll appreciate and exalt King Jesus all the more when you realized the depths from which he pulled you. The lower you go, the higher you fly. Or as Thomas Watson said, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Friends, I pray sin is bitter to you. That you don't just shrug your shoulders at it, but that it is bitter to you. Because when that's the case, you'll look up and see Jesus in the sweetness of his grace. And that leads us to the third reality here. So we've seen the glory of God, the sinfulness of man, the number three, the grace of Jesus. The grace of Jesus. Verse six, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. You see what God does? You know what God could have said? Isaiah, you're right. Woe to you. You deserve just judgment. And you've met your end. And I'm going to give you the judgment you deserve. But that's not what God does. God graciously removes his sin. Now, This might seem like a strange way this happens, right? There's tongs, the angels are involved, they take this coal from the altar. Suffice it to say, these things had no magical powers for Isaiah. They are instruments in the temple for worship, and God's using them here symbolically to demonstrate his work of grace. And notice what he does. He takes the coal and he applies it to the very specific sin that Isaiah confesses. That reminds us, God doesn't forgive sin generally, but specifically. He knows every wicked act and thought that you have ever done, ever committed. And when we cry out to him and confess our sins to him and believe the grace that's offered to us in Christ, what does he do? He applies the gospel to every single one of those offenses and he removes them. Your guilt is taken away. Isaiah, you don't have to bear this anymore. Your sin is atoned for, meaning the wrong is now made right. Now notice I said the grace of Jesus here. I was very specific about that. And you might say, well, why are you you talking about the grace of Jesus when Isaiah is 700 years before the birth of Jesus? Well, this is why it's so important to have a good Bible with some solid cross-references. Because this isn't the only place we see this passage. In fact, in the the Gospels, John chapter 12, John is writing of the ministry of Jesus. And he is referring to Isaiah chapter 6. And as he does, he gives this 
side commentary remark in John 12, 41 that lets us know who's on the throne in Isaiah chapter 6. He says, Isaiah said these things, John 12, 41, because he saw his glory and spoke of him. John's saying, just in case you're wondering who this is on the throne in Isaiah chapter 6, it is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who comes down in the midst of anxiety and fear and says, I'm the the Adonai, I'm the sovereign one. Jesus Christ comes in and displays the glory of God to sinful people like you and me. Jesus Christ is the one who comes in and says, I have laid down my life in your place so that you who believe, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Friends, do you realize these three points? The glory of God, the sinfulness of man, and the grace of Jesus Christ? That's just the gospel. The good news of what Christ has done for us. See, do you want to see the glory of God? Look to Jesus. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and in him we have seen his glory. See, Isaiah thought he was finished, but God steps in and says, I will do what you can never do, Isaiah. And he says that to us today too. I will do what you can never do. You can never remove your guilt. You can never cleanse your life of sin. You can never give your yourself new life. Only Jesus can give us those things, friends. And notice, Isaiah doesn't do a thing in chapter 6. He only receives. He only receives. Like Isaiah, we bring nothing but our brokenness and sin to the table, but God forgives. Right? And he makes us in to worshipers of him. Friends, will you accept this grace that Jesus offers to you this morning? Some of you, for the first time, will you believe in Christ and his sacrifice for you, his victorious resurrection for your sin, him giving his righteousness to you, and be transformed into a worshiper of him? Some of us, we need to be refreshed. We need to come again to the well right, and drink of this gospel grace. And so this is what God does for Isaiah. It's just the gospel. He transforms him and then after those three realities we see the task at hand. Isaiah's response gives us a, a picture of what it means to live a life that is fully devoted to God. He doesn't just get the salvation and say, all right, I'm out. He's not just getting a, a get out of hell free card. Verse 8, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. Now notice that word us here. Whom shall I send, who will go for us? I believe this is a hint at the Godhead, one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. But also this divine council is apparently planning a mission. Now, God's not confused here. He's not saying, I wonder who I'm, I'm, I'm going to be able to send. No, it's this hypothetical question that gives Isaiah to, to the opportunity to demonstrate immediate obedience as one who's been changed by the grace of Jesus. Right? And what does Isaiah do? You, you, get this, you get this picture of him just like a little kid saying, me, 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 I'll go. 
He doesn't go, well, God, let, hold on a second. What's the, do you have a job description? Right, how many hours a week? 15, 20, what are we talking here? What's the pay like? I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to pray about it. He doesn't do any of that. Isaiah says, I don't, I don't care what it is. After what you have done for me, I'm yours. You say jump, I say how high. Here I am, send me. One of my favorite movies is The Count of Monte Cristo. No, I haven't read the book. It's like 2,000 pages. Are you kidding me? But the movie's great. And there's this scene where Edmund Dantes, the main character, escapes from this island prison. And he's washed up ashore two miles away. And he's found by these pirates. And this, this uh, pirate ship captain says, hey, this is great timing because we have a, 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 a guy on our crew, Jacopo, who has, we caught him stealing. So we were going to bury him alive, but now that you're here, we're going to have you guys have a knife fight to the death. It'll be great. Our men will get to see some sport. Whoever wins, wins. And so Dante says, okay, now if you've seen the movie or know the story, he's been trained by a priest to do all sorts of karate things. And so he's ready for the fight. So he takes the knife and they start fighting and Dante's over, overwhelms him and you think he's about to kill him, but he spares his life. Turns to the captain and says, your men have seen some sport. Now you have two men on your crew. Let's spare Jacopo's life. The captain says, that's a good idea. And then Jacopo pulls Dante's close and he says, I'm your man forever. I'm your servant. Friends, that's what is happening to Isaiah here. And friends, that should be the response of you and I when we realize what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. He has rescued us from sin and death and eternal judgment. Our response should be, God, I'm yours forever. Whatever the task, I am your servant. And note the order here. Obedience happens only after the radical transformation by God's grace. You can't do it the other way around. You can't obey your way into the worship of God. Kelly Capick, a commentator, says, God's grace leads Isaiah from woe is me to here I am. And friends, the same should be true for us. And then we see in verses 9 through 13 the task at hand for Isaiah. We don't have time to get into this, but let's read it again just to know the kind of mission he's going on. Keep on hearing, but you'll say to the people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it'll be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is the stump. All right, so here it is. Here's the mission trip. And you think, it's going to be great, God's rescued me, Isaiah's going to go, he's going to preach, and thousands of people are going to turn and believe in God. And what does God say? You're going to preach and no one will listen. They'll reject you. It's not going to be a cakewalk, it's going to be hard. 
In fact, I'm going to use your message to bring my judgment on these people. But notice at the end, verse 13, there will be a remnant that remains. And out of this, the holy seed will sprout up. That will eventually lead to the birth of Jesus Christ. Friends, here's the point. God never promises us an easy road when we live on mission for him. He never says, now you're saved, it's going to be a breeze, it's going to be fine. No, in fact, as we constantly, when we look through the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New, we see hardship for those who, who seek to take the message of the gospel to those who don't believe. We see opposition, we see pain, we, we see even death. I think of our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan right now, doing what we're doing right now, but hiding out in fear of death. That's the task for Isaiah. What's the task for us? We fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus tells his disciples and by way of extension us, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and behold, I am with you to the end of the age. That's the task at hand for us. For those of us who have experienced the glory of God, recognized our sin, been transformed by his grace, now our task is to go with the gospel. If you are a Christian, you are a missionary in your home, in your workplace, in your community. Is it easy? Absolutely not. But is it worth it? So that others can experience the grace that you and I have experienced? Absolutely. It's particularly hard in our context, isn't it? The missiologists would say New England is 2% less Christian. It's very expensive to live here. If you try to share the gospel with people, maybe you'll find just a hard-heartedness or indifference to it. Is it easy? No. But is it worth it? Absolutely. Pastor Clint and I had an opportunity this week to go to North Adams, Massachusetts for a church planning gathering and hear the work that God is doing around New England. These life-giving churches sprouting up and ordinary Christians being faithful in their context to take the gospel so that others can encounter the glory of God. It's worth it. Can you imagine what would have happened if Isaiah said, you know what, that's too hard, I'm out. Isaiah would be a very short book. Can you imagine what happened if Jesus, sitting enthroned in heaven, said to the Father, it's too easy and comfortable here. I don't want to leave the throne. But what did he do? He humbled himself and became a servant, became the greatest missionary who ever lived and gave himself for a people who rejected him that they might have life. Friends, a simple question is, Will we accept the task at hand for us? Will we take the gospel, the good news of God's glory, the reality of our sin, the grace of Jesus Christ, will we take that message into our homes, into our neighborhoods, into our workplaces? Listen, I understand that it's awkward. Just push past the awkwardness. I understand you don't want to be seen like the weirdo who's always telling other people about Jesus. That's fine. You are a weirdo if you follow Jesus by the world's standards. Push through it. 
Will we accept the task to take the gospel to those around us? Charles Spurgeon wrote of this, and he puts it in a bit of a heavy-handed way, but I think it's an encouraging and needed correction, exhortation, rebuke, even for my own heart, and I pray yours. He says, if Jesus is precious to you, I want you to stop for a second. Think about that. Most of us would say, yes, Jesus is precious to us. He says, if Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. You'll be whispering it into your child's ear. You'll be telling it to your husband. You'll be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Without the charms of eloquence, you will be more than eloquent. Your heart will speak and your eyes will flash as you talk of his sweet love. Every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. Recollect that. You either try to spread abroad the kingdom of Christ or else you do not love him at all. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus, that's worship. It cannot be that there's a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about him. You hear what Spurgeon is saying? You cannot worship Jesus properly if you're not living on mission for Jesus. So friends, as we consider these things, let me just end with some practical encouragements to stoke the fire of worship in your heart for Jesus so that it overflows into your conversations. First is just daily seek a fresh vision of God in the word and prayer. We may hear this vision from Isaiah and say, that doesn't happen to me. And you're right, it doesn't. It's a unique thing that God did with a prophet. But do you know what does happen for believers today? We have the very God-breathed words of the creator of the universe speaking directly to us. You say, I wish God would speak to me like he spoke to Isaiah. Here it is. This is God's word speaking to you. Daily seek fresh vision of God in the word and prayer, which also means confession and repentance. Second, Pastor Clint highlighted our gospel communities. I think one of the reasons mission is so hard for us is because sometimes we try to go at it alone. Be in a gospel community. Be with other brothers and sisters who can encourage you, who you can live on mission with together. So daily fresh vision of God in the word and prayer. Christian community, gospel communities. And then third and simply, this this is the one thing I would love for you to do this week. Tell someone about Jesus. You say, I don't know how. Just start talking about what God's done in your life. You say, I'm not as eloquent as a preacher. You don't need to be. The greatest missionary movements in history have been led by people who aren't clergy. Think and pray. That person God is putting on your mind right now who does not know Christ, begin a conversation with him about Jesus. Spread the good news of the gospel. See, we exist to worship God. He has through the gospel, through Christ, made us worshipers of him. And now we have the privilege of taking this message to the world around us. Let's pray together.